God's Word says this, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, and her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill which was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we just recognize you as king. We recognize that you rule and reign in majesty and beauty and glory. And you're also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we honor you this morning as you presented this table before us in the presence of our enemies. We thank you for your word that never returns to you void. So Holy Spirit, would you open each heart this morning that your word would uh, fall on fertile soil, burying a harvest 30, 60, and 100 fold, so that you would get all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. The title of this message is Receive Your King. Receive Your King. Jesus is now arriving in Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week. He has already forewarned his disciples at least three times that he was going to go to Jerusalem to be delivered, condemned, and then put to death. And oh, by the way, he was going to raise up on the third day. He's on his way to the cross. In fact, eight chapters of Matthew are dedicated to this one week. Passover, the remembrance and celebration of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. And each Hebrew family was commanded to sacrifice a lamb, an unblemished male of one one year of age. They were to paint the doorposts with that blood so that the plague of death would pass over that home. You remember that this was the tenth plague that God Uh, showed forth there in Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let Israel go into the desert to worship him. And we know that Pharaoh did relent because he lost his firstborn. Every every home that did not have the blood painted on the doorposts lost their firstborn. Their firstborn was killed. And even Pharaoh lost his firstborn. But he changed his mind. Remember, after he let him go, But God opened up the Red Sea, Israel escaped, but Egypt drowned. And this is the deliverance that they were to commemorate there in the Passover. And this was a big deal. All males, all Hebrew males of 
of 18 years of age and older were required, were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with their family. Now, this is a city at the time of Christ of some 200,000 inhabitants. During the time of the Passover, the, the, the residency there swelled up to 2.6 million inhabitants. There was tension in the air because of Rome. You know, Israel was under the domination of Caesar and the Romans. But at the same time, the Israelites were passionately anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. Just six days, or just a few days before, Jesus has, had raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of all the people being so excited about Christ, the anticipation, the chief priest plotted the death of Jesus after the Passover. In fact, the, the chief priest Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, he prophesied. He prophesied. He said, you know, it is better that one man die for the nation than for the whole nation to perish. So there was tension and excitement and intrigue and plotting in the air. And that's why it says in verse 10 that the city, the whole city was stirred. It was shaking. It was quaking because of the arrival of Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus normally wanted anonymity after a miracle. After he would heal the paralytic or the blind or the leper, he would say, shh, by the way, don't tell anyone. Well, how are they going to do that, right? Their life has just been transformed, and they start shouting, it was Jesus, it was Jesus. It's his fault, that's why I'm healed, right? But here, Jesus is not being quiet, right? He is openly declaring his Messiahship. On this very day, the 10th of the month Nisan, which corresponds to April 6th, on this day, this Palm Sunday, this was the day that the lambs would be selected and inspected. Each family would choose their lamb. And this was a fulfillment of prophecy in the uh, book of Daniel. Daniel says this, No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes... There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. This is the prophecy. Israel was taken captive to Babylon for 70 years, remember? And the king here referred, that, that made this decree is Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And he made the, the decree that Israel could go back to their country of Israel and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So he dispatched Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, guys like that, that went to rebuild the city. But here it's giving us a timeline. It's saying from that decree from the Persian king Artaxerxes to the coming of the Messiah, the prince, there would be a time period of 69 sevens. I know it's early to do math, but 69 sevens refers to 483 years. And that's exactly the fulfillment of God's word. From the decree of Artaxerxes to the coming of Jesus here on Palm Sunday, right? The triumphal entry. There was a period of 483 years. And that's the very day that Jesus showed up. In April 6, A.D. 32. So God is fulfilling his word to the T. There's no quinketing care. Right? This was pre-planned before the foundations of the world that Jesus would show up on a donkey 
as prophesied through the prophet Zechariah, right? On the very day that they would select and inspect lambs, Jesus being the Lamb of God, right? No coincidence here. This was all pre-planned by God. Jesus and only Jesus perfectly fulfills God's timetable. We don't need to look for another Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah. He is the chosen Lamb of God. So during Passover, they would select the lamb and bring it into the house for a week. Why would they do that? First of all, remember, they had to select a lamb unblemished. And so having that lamb in their view or within the home for a week would allow them to inspect thoroughly and make sure that male lamb was unblemished and without spot. But number two, this is very interesting. They would see the innocence of the lamb and feel the reality, feel the reality of that lamb that was going to be sacrificed on behalf of the family. So it was at this very day, this very time, that God is presenting his lamb before all of Israel. Jesus would be in Jerusalem the next four days to be observed and inspected. And Jesus indeed passed the inspection. Remember the words of Pilate just a couple days after this event. Pilate declared, I find no fault in this man. Jesus, the Lamb of God, unblemished and without spot. And also, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the Old Testament agreement or covenant, the best you could hope for would be having your sins covered. There are 613 different commandments in the Old Testament. You've got the Levitical system, all these sacrifices that you would have to offer to God. And after all that, the best you could even hope for was to have your sins covered. But when Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, showed up, remember that first evangelistic campaign, and he, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He just doesn't cover your sins. He removes them. He takes them away. As far as the east is from the west, right? He removes our sins. He is the Lamb of God. This is the last week of the life of our Lord prior to his crucifixion. The last drama, the last event in his ministry. Jerusalem was to be the end. He would never leave the vicinity of Jerusalem Again, this is the end of 33 years. 30 years of obscurity and three plus years of ministry. It all culminates here. The goal of his ministry and life reached its climax here. Last week, Pastor Billy spoke to us about how Jesus was traveling through Jericho. Remember the healing of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus that received his sight as he was crying out to God, the, the, uh, the son of David, to heal him. And Jesus healed him and he showed compassion. But again, he's passing through Jericho on his way, ascending up to Jerusalem. It's about 17 miles from Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem is some 3,000 feet in elevation with this great entourage of people. From the people of Jericho that witnessed the the miracle of Bartimaeus, hearing about Lazarus and his resurrection, you can imagine just thousands of people accompanying Jesus. And when you go to Israel, it's definitely one of the highlights is ascending up to Jerusalem. 
And it says as he approached two towns, Bethphage and Bethany. Bethphage and Bethany, which were approximately two kilometers from Jerusalem, just east of the Mount of Olives. Now, the, the Bethphage, the town of Bethphage means house of figs. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But why Bethany? Why, by the way, Bethany means house of dates. That's where eHarmony got its beginning. But anyway, uh, he, why did... Not really. Why did Jesus go to Bethany? Well, Lazarus was from the town of Beth, uh, Bethany. And there lived Lazarus with his two sisters, Martha and Mary. Remember, Jesus is on his way not just to a coronation. He's on his way to death, to death row. And he longed for companionship and fellowship and encouragement. So he spent some time in Bethany to break bread with his good friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. We all need fellowship. We were created for community. And since I direct the, or co- help coordinate the community groups, I have to give a plug. If you're not a community group, you need to be so. It's God's will. It's God's design. You know, what did God say to Adam? It's not good for man to be alone. He's just not talking about marriage. He's saying, as human beings, we have an innate need for community and not live isolated. So Jesus being God, even he felt and sensed the need to be in fellowship with his good, his good friends from uh, Bethany. So he goes uh, there to Bethany, and this is six days before the Passover. They, there was an, a dinner in his honor, and he was anointed there. And he was loved by everyone, well, almost everyone. Six days before the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the true sacrifice, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world is to be offered. Six days from the nails. Six days from the thorns, the spit, the cursing. Six days from the spear, the crown, the hatred, the bitterness. Six days from the sin bearing, the loneliness of being God forsaken. Just six days. But let me say this. Jesus was no victim. He was not caught up in some euphoric messianic movement. Make no mistake about it. Everything is under his control. And all is within his own power. Every detail he worked out carefully. And he wanted the people to cry out, Hosanna in the highest, O son of David. Right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he sets the stage. He sends two of his disciples, possibly Peter and John. Go to the village ahead of you and you will find a donkey tied there. And her colt by her. Now, Whether Jesus pre-planned this or this was a word of knowledge that the donkey would be in a certain location, we don't know. But we do know this. No king, no king rode on a donkey. Certainly not at a coronation. 300 years prior, Alexander the Great entered into Jerusalem upon a warrior horse with his sword. But Zechariah, the prophet here, states that your king, notice the personal pronoun there, your king will ride on a donkey. He's a king, unlike any other king. 
And he has a coronation unlike any other coronation. He didn't come to slay the people. He came to save people. And he came, the Bible says, on a borrowed donkey. And this would be a common thread through the life of Christ. Jesus was born in a borrowed manger, literally a feeding trough. Jesus preached in a borrowed boat. Jesus multiplied borrowed fish and bread. He was able to give back ten, ten baskets full, right? The Last Supper, he borrowed an upper room. He also borrowed a tomb for burial. How did that go? Oh, I'm going to need a tomb for three days. Is it okay if I borrow it? <laughs> now we see Jesus riding on a borrowed donkey. He who was rich became poor, impoverished. The creator of the universe became man, vulnerable, purposely limiting himself, emptying himself, humbling himself, even being obedient to the cross, bestowing on us the privilege of partnering with him. To ride a young animal that had never been ridden would be very special, right? It would be a sacred thing. This donkey that had been set apart for the use of King Jesus. And he says in verse 2, Jesus says, You will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her, and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them. A more literal translation is, The Lord has need of them, or the Lord has use for them. The donkey needed to be untied, loosed, and released in order to serve the king. That donkey had to be untied to be used for the service of the king. God unties us. He redeems us in order for us to be useful instruments in his kingdom. Although we are born again, there may be areas that need to be untied, unshackled, and freed up. The Lord has use for us. He really doesn't need us. God, God's will will be accomplished in the final day, in the final, just read Revelations, in the final moment, God's will will be accomplished. But he invites us, he calls us to partner with him in what he's doing. He can use us, even us. Now, lest we would boast, on the best of days, we are but a bunch of donkeys. <laughs> God can use anyone or anything. In the same episode, you'll remember when the children were crying out, Hosanna in the highest. We know God hears the prayers of children, right? Hosanna in the highest, son of David, right? And the chief priest says, shh, quiet these young ones. They don't know what they're saying. They're saying it in ignorance. What did Jesus say? If they remain quiet, the rocks will cry out. Could you imagine? What a, that's a rock concert. Imagine the rocks. The rocks will cry out. That would be extraordinary. The donkey had to be untied and released before it could be used. Lazarus had to be unwrapped and let go in order to be sent. The writer to the Hebrews exhorts us as Christians with these words. Throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. God unties us. 
and loses us to be free to love and to serve him. Brothers and sisters, you and I are free. We need to walk in this. God is telling us, stop acting as if you were still tied down. Jesus has removed the shackles. You are free. Free falling. No, 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 no. You are free. So Jesus' entry was prophesied by Zechariah. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was the fulfillment of Scripture. There was, there's over 350 Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. Jesus fulfills all 350 plus prophecies regarding the Messiah. Mathematicians have calculated for the probability of one individual to fulfill just eight, eight prophecies would be an astronomical number. One in ten to the 21st power. I don't know what that means. Maybe you homeschoolers might know. But one in ten to the 21st power. That's a big number. And Jesus fulfilled all 350 plus prophecies. Jesus is the Messiah. Don't be mistaken. Don't anticipate anyone else. In fact, the only other one who's going to come with the Messiah complex will be the Antichrist. Jesus has come. He is the Messiah. He is God's anointed. He is sent from the Father, the one and only. And that should be our heart's prayer for our our precious uh, Hebrew friends, our Jewish friends. Lord, open their eyes to see that you, Jesus, are their Messiah. You are the one. You're the fulfillment. The problem here at this time, here at the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, the people were anticipated and wanted a military Messiah. They wanted one who would come in and by great power overthrow Rome. He had come, if had he come in a, on a white horse with a, with a sword, they would have known what he was coming to do. But Jesus came riding on a donkey, weaponless, meek, and lowly. And this was totally unexpected. And they were perplexed. Nonetheless, in verse 8, it says that a very large crowd hundreds of thousands, no doubt, spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is a type of coronation. They were recognizing Jesus as king. The most valuable possession that they had was their cloak, and they were willing to put it on the mud, to put it on the mud so that the king would pass by. And then they cut branches in honor of King Jesus. In the Old Testament, it talks about like King Yehu or Jehu that passed by and they put their cloaks on the ground so he would walk, kind of like a carpet, providing like a carpet for him. Uh, 200 years before Christ, there was, uh, the Syrians had overtaken Jerusalem, Israel. It was run by a real evil, wicked king whose last name was Epiphanes. And remember, he's the guy that desecrated the temple. He sacrificed the pig there in the Holy of Holies, remember? Well, it was a man named Judas Maccabee and his brothers, the Maccabees, that showed up and they overcame the Syrians and they threw them out of the city. And when in celebration of this great triumph and victory, as Judas Maccabee walked through the city, they cut palm branches and they waved them towards him 
and to honor him, right? So that's what the Jews were doing here for Jesus. We have a beautiful scripture in Revelation chapter 7 that talks about the heavenly scene. This is what's going to happen in just a couple years from now. where We're in heaven, right? And we're recognizing Jesus as our Savior, as our King, as the Lamb of God. Notice what it says here. Uh, the Apostle John says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Even in heaven, Jesus is known as the Lamb of God. Even in heaven, Jesus will still have the scars. He's the lion. He's the conquering lion indeed, but he's also the suffering servant. He's the Lamb of God. And notice here, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, right? And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So when we think of King Jesus, we've got to think about him as the Lamb as well. But here, what kind of salvation were the people anticipating here on Palm Sunday? It wasn't soul salvation, It wasn't deliverance from their sins, rather military deliverance. Once again, what are they celebrating? They're going to celebrate Passover, the deliverance from Egypt, how God delivers people out of bondage, how God delivered them out of the captivity of Egypt. Now here comes Jesus, the very time they celebrate their delivering God. Here comes a new deliverer to deliver them from Rome. So they thought, right? And so the euphoria escalates. A man on a donkey, without an army, without a weapon, and mass of hundreds of thousands of people crushing in, declaring and cried out, Hosanna, which means save now. Save now, deliver now. They wanted a material kingdom, a physical kingdom, an earthly kingdom. Remember after the feeding of the 5,000 there in John 6? They were just so overjoyed. Boy, we don't have to work again. We can retire. We just met a guy that's able to multiply two fish and five loaves and feed, you know, 10,000 people these McFish sandwiches, right? And it says in John 6 that the multitude intended to make Jesus king by force. By force. You're our king. We submit to you. But the Bible says that Jesus withdrew. Why is it? Jesus did not come to fill our bellies. Jesus came to save our souls. He is the bread of life. He is the manna that has descended from heaven. He alone can satisfy. So the people here at uh, the triumphal entry were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. They just didn't understand the nature of his messiahship. They knew he was the king. They just didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. Their worship was demonstrative and loud and joyful, but it was misguided. They even quoted scripture. Hosanna in the highest is straight out of scripture, referring to the Messiah. Hosanna. To the son of David, blessed is he, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another uh, um, messianic psalm, there's Psalm 118. They were very sincere. They longed for him. They put their hope in him. Nonetheless, they couldn't embrace the idea of a king who was going to die. They wanted a Jesus of their own devising, of their own invention. They wanted a Jesus who walks in and says, 
I'm going to solve all your problems. I'm going to deliver you from all your enemies. I'm going to make life wonderful for you. And maybe that's your idea of Jesus this morning. Yeah, I've got 90% of my life together. I just need an additive. I just need that 10% to complete the equation. Jesus isn't an additive of 10%. He wants the whole enchilada or nothing. That's Jesus, right? And this is what they were celebrating. They didn't want the Jesus who takes a whip and cleans up their dirty house. Jesus didn't come to overcome, overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow the temple. What a turning point here in the life of Christ. Instead of coming in and knocking off Rome, he came and cleaned up their temple. He was saying to them, you don't need Roman bondage broken. You need sin bondage broken. You don't need to solve your problem with Rome. You need to solve your problem with God. Let me say that again. You don't need to solve your problem with Rome. You need to solve your problem with God. Many think, gosh, if I just had these exterior ancillary issues resolved, then life would be a dream, right? Life would be a a wonderment. Our problem is with God. We're alienated from God because of our sin, okay? God can deal with the outside of the tomb, and it could be nice and white, but there's still death inside, And Jesus is the one who comes to offer men and women peace with God. Right relationship with the Father through the redemption of His Son. And this is what Jesus wants to do with you and with me. He is just not interested in fixing your addictions or relational brokenness or financial stresses. Jesus wants you. He wants to love you. And by the way, you are not defined by your addictions or brokenness or stresses. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He wants to come in and cleanse you. He wants to come in and break bread with you. Have fellowship with you. That famous verse that all of us know, they're in Revelation chapter 3, right? The words of Christ to the church in Laodicea. What does it say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Most times we use that verse as an evangelistic call to non-believers to come forward to su- surrender their lives to Christ. Do we realize that this verse was written to the church? Do we realize that Jesus found himself outside the church in Laodicea? And he was gently knocking. Now Jesus is a gentleman. He won't uh, tear down the door. He won't kick down the door. He gently knocks. And he says to the pastor there, the group of elders there, the church body there, if you'd be willing to open the door, that he would come in and sup with them and them with him. Remember, in the Jewish mind, to break bread was, very, was a serious thing. It was like making a covenant with a person. That's why they had a difficult time breaking bread with a non-Jew or with a Gentile. And so for Jesus to say he would come in and break bread with them, he's talking about intimate fellowship. And that's the heart of Jesus. That's what he wants to do in your life. And in my life. Now they were hailing him as a conquering king. They were using all the right verbiage. They were filled with anticipation. They were so excited that Jesus would come to crush Rome. But Jesus was heading towards Golgotha. Or Golgotha. The cross. And when he heard the word Hosanna. He wasn't wasn't hearing save them from Rome. He was hearing salvation 
from their sins. The cross was the path to the throne. The cross was the path to the throne for the establishment of his kingdom. There's no shortcuts. No other way. And that's what Jesus pleaded with his father there in Gethsemane. There in the Mount of Olives. He pleaded, Father, if there's any other way. If there's any other way. And the answer of the father to his son was, no, there is no other way. It reminds me of the Ethiopian emperor, Menelik II. Menelik II, who lived in the mid-1800s. And Menelik, the emperor Menelik, Ethiopian emperor, was fascinated with Western technology. And he heard about this new invention there in the United States, the invention of the electric chair. And Menelik II thought this would be an effective way to deal with unruly criminals. I'm going to purchase an electric chair. In fact, he purchased three electric chairs, and they were shipped to Ethiopia. But the electric chairs did not work in Ethiopia. And the reason is Ethiopia did not have electricity at this time. And the emperor was shocked. The emperor was shocked. Hey, I could do J-High ministry. Where do I sign up? I'm ready to go. So in order to save face, Emperor Menelik II used one of these electric chairs in his palace as a throne. He took the electric chair, put it in his throne, and from there he executed orders, right, and, and commissionings. His chair became his throne. His chair became his throne. The electric chair became his throne. The cross of Calvary became Jesus' throne. And from there he declared, it is finished to Telestai. At the cross, Jesus conquered sin, death, and the devil. And his resurrection sealed the deal. But back here on Palm Sunday, the crowd is swept up. The whole mob, the, the mood of the mob is sweeping through. And they're all caught up in this frenzy, right? And they exclaim, who is this Messiah? Who are we hailing? Who is it? And they were perplexed. Even the disciples were perplexed. John 12, verse 16. We, have, we find a very interesting verse here. John 12, 16. The apostle John says, These things the disciples, his disciples, did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. Even his disciples, who were with Jesus for three plus years didn't comprehend that he was going to come on a donkey in humility and meekness. It wasn't until Jesus went to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit that they got the picture. If the disciples were confused, you can imagine how confused the crowd was. They were hailing him as king, but some of them really didn't know who he was. And so the others were saying, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. And the word went through, who is this? Is this the Messiah? Remember the words of Nathaniel. Can, from Nazareth, can anything good come? <laughs> uh, Nazareth definitely was not the epicenter of Judaism. First of all, it was located up in the hated north. You know, those from the capital, those from the capital despised everyone else outside the capital. Those from Jerusalem felt that they were the... Uh, 
la creme innata, I don't know how to say that, they, that they were just like the most, you know, special people, right? And they, they looked with disdain upon all those around. Well, that's how they, they viewed Nazareth from the north. And, but it was there that Jesus fulfilled his ministry. But they were looking for a materialistic kingdom. Health, wealth, happiness. Here now, give it to me fast. And they're not willing to face the reality of their sinfulness and emptiness and estrangement from God. And maybe there are some here this morning that, that, that that's your idea of the gospel. That's, that's good news. Health, wealth, getting, getting over, getting what I desire, what I wish. And that was the heart of the people here in Jerusalem. Because they didn't face the reality of their sin, and so they cursed Jesus once he confronted them in that. And this broke Jesus' heart. This broke Jesus' heart in spite of their praise and adulation. How do we know that? Well, in Luke's account of the same episode of Palm Sunday, it says as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he looked over the city and wept. He looked over the city and wept. How is it possible that Jesus is weeping while all this exuberant praise and, and worship is going on? Everyone has recognized that he is the Messiah, the Christ. There's a beautiful verse in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, that says that many were believing upon the name of the Lord, seeing the wonders and signs he was doing, right? Many put their trust in the name of the Lord. But then the following verse says, but Jesus was not entrusting himself in no man. He was not entrusting himself in them. Why? Because he knows the heart of man. He knows the fickleness of man. And we have another clue. The following day, which would be Monday, right? It says that Jesus went to Bethphage. Remember House of Figs? That's what Bethphage means. And he saw there a fruitless fig tree, and he cursed it, and it withered. And that fig tree was symbolic of Israel there in the Old Testament. The fruitless fig tree with lots of foliage, but no fruit. With the foliage, there should have been some evidence of future fruit. Let me say this. Fruitful worship flows from the reality of the cross. Crossless worship is Christian entertainment. And when we say the word Hosanna, it is both a petition as well as an exclamation. As a petition, save us now from ourselves, from our sin, from our depravity. As an exclamation, thank you, Lord, for saving us. So one moment they are crying out, Hosanna, Blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later, they'd be crying out something very different. They would say, crucify him. Crucify him. We prefer Barabbas. Free Barabbas. Crucify him. And like I said, that speaks of the fickleness of man. That speaks of my fickleness. The prophet Elijah there in Mount Carmel confronted the same thing. After the fire came down and consumed the, 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 the offering, remember? Elijah said these words. How long will you fluctuate? How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you vacillate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, go after him. And it says that the people remained silent. They were not willing to make a stand. They preferred 
to continue in that state of wavering and fluctuating. They didn't want to make a stand. And this is why Jesus wept. This is why he cursed the fig tree. This is why he cleansed the temple. His heart was heavy. They didn't understand that the Savior of the world had to die on the cross. He had to pay the penalty for their sins. Fruitful worship gushes forth from a heart that recognizes God's extravagant grace to redeem and save depraved man. Fruitful worship is the act of surrendering one's life to the one who surrendered his life for us all. His work of untying us is finished. His work of cleansing our temple is done. And we need to walk in that. It's a finished work. That's why Jesus could say to Telestai, it is finished. We can't untie ourselves. We can't unshackle ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. It has to be God. And that's what he's done because of the cross of Calvary. Embrace that, brothers and sisters, today. Embrace that. That is your identity. That is your identity. This is your king. Receive him. Follow him. Worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize you as king. You've come in majesty and glory, God. Even though it was lowly on a donkey, God, because you had greater purposes. It wasn't to crush Rome. It was to crush our pride. It was to redeem us from the consequences of sin, which is death. And you are the Lamb of God who takes away, who removes our sin as far as the east from the west. And you tell us in Isaiah chapter 1, come, let us reason together. So we want to reason together, not on the basis of our emotions, but rather upon the objective truth of your word, that though our sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. We have an advocate face-to-face to the Father. And when we're willing to confess, when we're willing to agree, when we're willing to say the same thing, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, from all unrighteousness. God, we receive your Son. We receive your Messiah, the one who was prophesied, who fulfilled over 350 different prophecies, God. We receive Christ. We don't anticipate any other. He is our Savior, our Messiah. We receive Him, the Lamb of God. And we thank you for it now. In Jesus' name, amen.